0: Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 327 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I had a fantastic conversation with French astrophotographer and aurora specialist, Adrian Madou. Adrian and I talk all about his obsession with the aurora, and he provides countless actionable tips and rock-solid information that will improve your chances of capturing the aurora, and it will enhance your knowledge about how the aurora is formed. Adrian is also offering listeners a discount on his aurora chasing course using the code FSTOPCOLAB2023. I'll be sure to put a link to that in our show notes. All right, well, let's get started with this week's episode with Adrian Madhu. All right. Adrian Madut, it's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Matt.
0: Yeah, of course, of course, of course. It's always good to talk to another bald white guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think I became aware of you because a lot of people recommended you for the podcast over the years, but also I, I got to see some some fascinating stuff going on, on Twitter that was centered around you recently. Which reminded me, oh, I should probably reach out to this guy because he seems really cool.
1: Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, there's been, uh, you know, this um, this debacle on on Twitter, and I think that um, that echoed throughout the community as, uh, you know, as a content creator. You know, a lot of content creators reached out to me that I, you know, never talked to in the past, and uh, they supported me. So I think, you know, this is a subject that we can talk about at length uh, because, yeah, it's just. Uh, I don't know. I don't have uh, any adjectives for now, but I'll have by the end of the the podcast for sure.
0: (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Well, Adrian, for people that aren't familiar with you and your work, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: All right. So I'm a 34-year-old photographer, a French photographer, and I started my career not as a photographer, actually, about 10 years ago. I started as a master's degree or master's in science, uh, in environmental sciences especially, uh, but then after, uh, like long story short, after uh, the the economical crisis back then uh, when I was st- finished with my studies, I couldn't find a job in my branch, which is ecology. Um, and so I found a teaching position in Denmark. Um, so finished my studies in France and Canada. I switch a bit too fast now, but then Back to, back to Denmark, I found this teaching position, uh, I think it was uh, high school, uh, about that level. And so that allowed me to have a lot of time for myself to do other stuff. And among these other things, um, I got to, I got involved with photography via uh, the Aurora, and I think we'll talk more about it in, um, in just a moment. Uh, and so that's how I got into astrophotography. And uh, now I'm a full-time photographer ba- based out of um, Tromsø in northern Norway. So that's within the Arctic Circle. And if you can see, if I turn my screen gently, yeah. it's yeah. snowing. <laughs> uh, so that is a bit crazy. We're you know, about to kick off June and it's snowing and it's uh, about 8 p.m. and you see it's uh, fully bright outside. So we're in the midnight sun season where the sun never sets. Uh, and of course, we can talk more about it as well. Uh, it's a very difficult lifestyle that we have here in the north. Uh, but so now I'm a full-time photographer. I do I don't do a lot of workshops like a lot of photographers. I do more content creating for production companies, so I do mostly time lapse and real- time films. I still do take a uh, you know a stills, for um, for clients, but that represents maybe less than five percent of my of my revenue. So I have uh, Aurora workshops and I th- Aurora courses, and I think we're we're gonna come back on those as well. Uh, and I do a lot of content uh, for um, social media and everything. So I have a lot of passive income uh, in that regard. Um, and in between, I have jobs filming and and uh, so I do a bit of I touch a bit on. Of, uh, on everything. And it's hard for me to define specifically what I do when people ask me, you know, uh, like I don't have like this specific job and I do a lot of uh, different things, but um, all in all, you know, I, I make it work. And so I'm here with my partner. We just bought a house in, uh, in beautiful Norway. And so, yeah, this is my situation right now. I, I'm not sure what I can, what more I can add uh, for people to to understand where you know what I do and where I live, but
0: yeah, no, that's 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 perfect. So obviously, we're gonna talk a lot about aurora and night photography. But I'm super curious now, having heard that. Uh, do you ever do just you know normal landscape photography that doesn't include the night sky and the aurora? Like, are you ever out shooting? Sunrise or sunset or intimate scenes or things like that.
1: Funny enough, I, so I, I do it every every now and then, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't I don't specialize on that. So I, I tried that at the very beginning when I started touching or you know like getting my hands on the camera. Uh, but um, I quickly realized that for some reason, you know, I'm still attracted to a beautiful landscape. There's something undeniable about that. Um, I don't know. There's something to me. There's something more appealing to uh darkness and and the night sky. So sunsets and sunrises beautiful if there's an animal in there perfect, but I'm really attracted to anything astro uh so whether it's milky way, galaxies, um uh noctilucent clouds. I think we'll talk more about those as well. Any night sky phenomena? Um yeah, those uh those are my uh specialization for sure.
0: Well, you certainly live in the right place.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, you what, you have like six months of the year where you basically don't have sun?
1: <laughs> yes, uh, only two months. So oh,
0: okay. But, you know, it's, it's like you have a lot more darkness.
1: Yeah, so so um, I think that's one of the misconceptions. Well, I'm not going to say misconceptions, but when we say we live in the Arctic, it's like, oh my gosh, like you must be like in darkness the whole time. And it's actually, we're, so we have two months of, the sun not rising at all and not setting at all, but uh, the course of objects in the sky is really gentle here in the Arctic. So, um, right. For for example, for these two months uh, in the winter, at the you know the the dead of the winter, we still have the sun doesn't cross the horizon, but we still it still lingers in that twilight zone for those hours. So we still have like a little bit of twilight, uh, which of course is not pure sunlight right it's not like um, the sun is hitting your face but um, still a little bit of light uh, but if you go way further north in Svalbard for example they do have darkness the whole day and in the summer yeah we do have the sun never sets so
0: yeah yeah it's quite a different quite a different lifestyle for sure I'm not sure I personally could get used to that but what I do appreciate it about it from a landscape photography perspective is you know in those shoulder seasons you've got those sunrises and sunsets that last like two or three hour long you know it 's fantastic.
1: <laughs> yeah, so in the, in the summer, I think for a landscape photographer, coming to the fjords to the Norwegian fjords um, and getting around midnight, so no, that that kind of compels you to stay you know up around midnight, but I think that's not, no problem for most landscape photographers. Uh, but you get that golden hour for like ages for like right. three, four hours. And it hits the fjords in this different from a different angle. So you really get the mountains lit up from, you know, the north and getting that golden color. I mean it's just oh wow. And you as you said in the shoulder seasons in the in the fall and in the spring we get um we get those, those long we get everything. We get sunrises, sunsets, aurora, the fall colors. Um, we, we do get a lot of things here. So yeah, that's why that attracts a lot of people.
0: For sure. So let's talk about Aurora. So how did you fall in love with photographing the Aurora?
1: So Aurora is what got me into photography. So the, the, for the little story, I was, um, I was in, in teaching in that, in that boarding school in Denmark. And one of my colleagues was the cadet teacher at the school. So he was used to being outside, uh, you know, at night with the students for you know extended extended periods of time. So he was um, he was used to you know being in the hills, looking at the horizon, looking at the stars and everything. And um, one day, around the teachers' room, we we're talking about our bucket lists, and I told him that my biggest dream was to see the aurora. And so he told me. Uh, did you know we could see the aurora from Denmark? And so I looked at him, I remember looking at him with a face like, there's no way you could see the aurora from Denmark. Because uh, in my head, you know, aurora was, could be seen only in, in you know, far north places or like f- close to the poles, polar places, like Alaska, Iceland, Norway, but Denmark? Mm, I was like, no, there's no way. So one night that uh, he, he told me there's good chances, or there are good chances to see Aurora. Um, he told me to head out to that beach. Uh, so I did, and then, uh, so I waited there for like hours and hours and hours on end in the cold Danish wind uh, on the Baltic. And so, after five hours on the beach, nothing happened, and I was like, yeah, so I'm, I'm convinced now that he was definitely kidding me. But so on the way back, I was, uh, you know, walking back to the car, and the tree line in front of me, it uh, lit up completely. And I had no idea for a split second, I just had no idea what it was. And so, you know, in my head, really for a split second, I thought, well, maybe that's the moon rising or like a boat lighting up, because behind me was was the sea, basically. Um, so I had no idea what it was. So I just, I turned back, and I think that's the, you know, the. The, the spark, uh, right? You, you, you see something that is so unfamiliar, and so, you know, I, I love nature, uh, generally speaking, but that is something that I had never seen with that intensity and, and the way it, it moved. Um, so what I was seeing behind me was the whole sea was sort of covered and reflecting these beautiful pillars. Although they weren't that saturated with the naked eye, but honestly, that didn't really, I think that's a, it's a problem that a lot of people have. It's like, oh, but that's not saturated. But to me, you know, I was so caught up in the moment, looking at these beautiful pillars dance on the horizon. Uh, that did something in me, I think. And um, so I was like, wow, mind blown. So I went back home, uh, f- you know, still heart pumping out of my chest because of the, <laughs> the adrenaline and everything. I actually pr- purchased a camera right there on the spot it was probably like three four in the morning like doesn't matter went to the to to my laptop and then um and then got a camera uh from amazon got my first camera ever and then uh, when it arrived i uh went back to the beach and tried to capture the aurora again and so of course my first results were really really bad (laughs) Uh, but i'm kind of proud to show these terrible pictures because it just shows the progression of you know where I started from and then where I'm at now and then after that I started you know really getting the my hands on the the whole thing I started looking at or watching tutorials on on YouTube on how to do practicing a lot outside whenever I had time I just went outside and now this is my full-time profession so you know <laughs> yes yeah.
0: Yeah, what what year was that when you had that epiphany?
1: Uh so that was 2014. So that's almost 10 years, 9 years.
0: Yeah, nice. Okay. Well, man, that's amazing. I um I did a trip to Iceland in 2018 and I'd never seen the aurora before that. Not really. I think I saw it very faintly once in Oregon when I lived there, but it was very faint. You know, nothing like, the, you know, the dancing lights and all that, which, you know, I fortunately when I was in Iceland, we had five straight days of aurora and i think one of those was like a kp7 and i was actually at vestrahorn at low tide and you know the all the water had just like dumped into the pools there and so you had the aurora reflecting in the water and i was just like what am i looking at this is i mean it was almost hard to operate the camera because you were just so blown away by what you were seeing
1: yeah 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 it's um the the first so so that the, the the first time I saw the the aurora was of course to me it was already like mind blowing, but when I really saw the the aurora for the first time it was also in Iceland believe it or not, and I think there's an indescribable feeling when you see it when it kind of covers the whole sky, it's just where's that coming from you know like and I, I, that's what you describe right it's like where's that uh, how is that <laughs> moving so fast it's incredible
0: yeah it's It's fascinating. Well, we're going to dive deeply into this topic today for sure. I would love for you to talk about your Aurora chasing workflow that you've created, because I know from my experience spending, you know, I guess it was eight days in Iceland I was there. You know, we spent a lot of time chasing the Aurora, looking at weather forecasts, trying to understand, okay, where are the clouds? where's the storm, you know, there's a lot of variables. So I'm curious kind of what your workflow is and kind of what your approach has been.
1: All right, so there's something I think a lot of people need to know is, and I think we're gonna come back afterwards, so I'm not gonna expand too much on that uh, before I start with the workflow, is that If you come to a zone called the auroral zone, that's where the aurora is, on average, 100% of the time. So that's where you have the best chances to see the aurora. So Iceland is in the middle of this zone, Um, so it's a good place to see the aurora. So your main issue at that point is not going to be the aurora, because on any given night, you will see at least a little bit of something. So your main issue, especially in Iceland, is the weather. Um, and the the weather in Iceland has this particular uh, this particular uh, or particularity is uh, the it has a, another layer of weather that other places don't have, and that's volcanism. Uh, actually, volcanoes um, generate a lot of water vapor, uh, so it creates this uh, layer of lower clouds. That is very hard to predict, and that you know goes with the pressure and with the wind. So Iceland has this extra uh, difficulty in in that way. Um, so it is still a beautiful place to capture the aurora from. Don't get me wrong, but um, it's a, probably a bit more difficult to to you know dodge the the, the clouds in Iceland, and you'll be. Uh, my experience tells me that uh, you need to be ready to drive sometimes five, six hours around the, you know, the, the yes, that, yeah, that ring road uh, around Iceland to be able to see something.
0: Yeah, that was um, that was definitely my experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, mine too. But to go back on the on the workflow, so the very first step there are three steps. So the very first step is to, and I think that's for people who want to dive a little bit more into the subject. So if, you know, you just want to deal with the aurora and you just want to know about the aurora. Maybe this first step is, is probably not for you. Uh, so the first step is to get acquainted and monitor what we call space weather. So that is basically uh, the weather that is in space and that, that is at the, ba- at the base of the aurora here on Earth because the aurora is created very far away from us, um, originates from the sun. So one, the first step is to really keep up with, that, keep up with the sun, basically, and what is the sun is producing. And you can do so by following a few people, uh, especially on social media. On media, uh, there is Dr. Tamthaskov. She's one of the pioneers in the community, and she, she produces these weekly forecasts uh, so not only space weather forecasts, but also aurora possibilities. And I think just keeping up with that uh, is enough, to be honest. Um, and there are a few other people that you can follow on Twitter. Um, there's Halo CME, HaloCME, uh, uh, other scientists. Generally speaking, it's, it's scientists and forecasters. I wouldn't, you know, follow anyone else uh, because this field is very new and there are lots of misconceptions and errors to be made. So, so that is the first step. The second step is uh, when you're already there, not necessarily in the field, but when you're, you, know, you started your journey um, to, to chase the lights, keep up with what we call the solar wind data. And those are uh, data that, that are, that are uh, measured on the way from the sun to the earth. So whatever the sun is spewing out, you know, out into space. We have placed satellites Strategically outside of our magnetic shields on the way from the sun to the earth, and we can kind of probe what is in what we call the solar wind. And so, those things are very important because uh, they're coming towards us more or less. And so, we kind of know in advance, usually between 30 minutes to an hour, what is coming towards us. So, that is, for example, the wind speed, the direction of the magnetic field. So, those things can be a bit complicated for the lineman, but when you start, you know, scratching the surface, those are actually not that complicated. Uh, So you want to pay attention to those things. And so the last step is when you're in the field this time is to keep up with the auroral activity because that the aurora is never constant. That's never, you know, that's one of the misconceptions that the aurora is dancing in the night sky all the time. And I think you experience that in, in Iceland as well. Uh, So it's not the case. So you want to be able to pay attention to what's happening in the sky. And to do that, you can um, use webcams, of course, you can use people's reports on social media. There are some apps as well that, you know, where people can report. And there are other things called magnetometers where you can kind of see the graphs and and see where uh, you have deflections and usually they tell you. What is above uh, that um, that observatory but this is a bit you know a bit more complicated uh, and t- just to go back on the the, the the second step about the solar winds I didn't tell tell you where to get that solar wind data um, so you get that solar wind data on the best source is the raw source is uh, the NOAA website uh, what's called the space weather Prediction Center and uh, you get the data by just looking at two satellites, ACE and Discover satellites, and that's in the data section of that website. Uh, but all the all the different apps and websites, I mean, if, if you use a different app for Aurora Chasing, they will have these data coming from uh, NOAA, so. Uh, but I think this is the best source because they have different things you can do. Uh, while on apps, you, there are things that you can't do, so.
0: Gotcha. Yep. And then, is it the, pretty much the same approach at both poles?
1: Yes. Uh, there is a little bit of, um, uh, I guess, I'm not going to say discrepancies, but uh, the, m- most of the aurora on the North Pole and the South Pole, they're kind of mirrored, but in recent years, they've actually uh, realized that they're not as equal as they thought. Uh, and actually, the aurora in the Southern Hemisphere uh, too bad for us is actually stronger than the aurora on, on average than the <laughs> aurora in the northern hemisphere. Uh, but we still get beautiful shows here. So it kind of doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> right. And then so maybe touch a little bit on, you know, KP. And, you know, you always hear like, oh, it's a KP7, like, you better get ready. Like, what does that mean?
1: Right. So actually, I was going to get into the the misconception. for <laughs> 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 misconceptions, but we can take it now because that's, that's always um, uh, a point. That's probably the biggest misconception in the aurora world, and I really regret that this number is advertised not only by by you know the you know whether it's photographers, people in in the in the community, but also unfortunately by the big entities because uh, the KP index, believe it or not, was not created for aurora chasing, but by extension and by proxy. Uh, It is still correlated in some ways, and I will explain to you. But by proxy, you know, entities like NOAA and the Space Weather Prediction Center and all the scientists, they use the KP as a reference uh, for Aurora, but it really isn't telling you anything about the Aurora with enough relevance uh, as an Aurora chaser. So, what is the KP index? The KP index is basically a measure at any given time of the, what we call the geomagnetic activity. The geomagnetic activity is basically what the, the field, the magnetic field of the Earth is doing at any given moment. And that is transcribed into a number of strength, if you will. Uh, it goes from zero to nine, zero being the lowest, so like a quiet magnetic field of the Earth, and nine being extreme, and so that's when the magnetic field of the earth is completely rattled by for example a solar storm that's when we get such kp numbers um so where does does the kp come into play when it comes to aurora well of course the uh the 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 more the kp the higher the kp is generally speaking the more widespread the aurora is that means usually it's confined at the poles, and when we have these, when the, the field of the Earth is really rattled, it, it kind of opens more at the poles, and so the, the auroral ring around the poles, what we call the oval, it expands towards lower latitude, and that's, that's when you see aurora at lower latitudes. Gotcha. Um, but so, these two are correlated, but they're not precise, the KP alone is not precise enough to tell you, for example, the latitude at, we, at which the aurora will end up being, and I think that's probably the biggest mistake that people make is that they look at these maps that the entities have produced. Uh, we call the, those the KP ma- or KP lines of visibility, um, and it tells you, for example, KP one, it will be visible in Alaska. KP five, it will be visible in Minnesota. Uh, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but those, believe it or not, are really. I'm not going to say they're wrong. Uh, but they're not precise enough at all. And I, I, I really stress the at all. For example, very recently, there was a KP4, and according to those maps, the the, uh, the aurora should have been seen only, um, you know, in, in central Canada. You know, they could never have been seen uh, all the way south to, I don't know, um, I, I have to translate because it was in, in Europe, but uh, they were seen... I know, here,
0: I know here we could see it in like Arizona, which is
1: yeah unheard of. Exactly. So and that night during that KP4 uh, equivalent US that would have been seen um, in, in um, I would say, the central states. Yeah. Right. And so according to these maps, you know, uh, if you only rely on these maps, you know, most people see KP4, they would never have gone out. Never, ever. And they would have missed the aurora because it was seen way further south. So the KP index just does something and the aurora does something else and it, it depends on other factors that the KP index doesn't take into account. Uh, so yes. my advice to you as an aurora chaser is keep the KP index. I know it's, it's tempting because it's a nice number you know it's, you don't have to look at anything else but please keep the KP index outside of your toolbox when you go chasing the aurora.
0: So if you're perhaps someone that lives in Oregon or even Colorado, what's a better way to predict whether or not you'd be able to see it on any given night?
1: All right. So for lower latitudes or what we call mid latitudes, you can never predict the Aurora. <laughs> okay, good. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's something that we cannot do. Uh, and I know that there are things went on the NOAA website and, you know, even the NASA that's that, 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 uh, that says aurora forecast but that, that is something that we just cannot do and uh I, we can do it with but with not enough relevance for us right for example,
0: rolling if, the yeah. dice
1: yeah for example if the forecast is right 10 percent of the time that's definitely not uh, a good tool to use right so someone in in oregon for example who wants to see the aurora i would say uh, keep up with the you know, what's the, just use the workflow. Keep up with the what's coming towards us. If there's a big CME, then that means, that doesn't mean automatically you will see Aurora, that means the chances are increased because solar storms or CMEs as we call them, they can miss us very easily, miss yeah, the Earth.
0: Cor- corona mass ejection, is that?
1: that? That's it, that's it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so keep up with the space weather, then keep up closer or more closely with the the solar wind to see if that CME is actually hitting us. And you'll see by then a lot of people, including me on social media, will be posting, oh, it looks like the CME has reached us right now. Uh, So good chances at high and low latitudes. And then um, when we have a solar storm hitting us, it's here to stay for several days. So generally two days, sometimes three or four. Um, So at that point, you know, just go outside and um, try your luck, and yeah.
0: Love it, all right, well, with that being said, what are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when chasing the Aurora?
1: All right, so definitely KP is probably the biggest mistake that people uh, can make, but I think we covered that already. Um, All right, another mistake, I think, is that a lot of people think the Aurora stays the same uh, or at least they're going to look at the same aurora if they travel to Iceland, for example. They think they're going to look at the same aurora throughout the whole night, right? And that's essentially wrong. Uh, the aurora along that ring, right, along that oval, is actually not the same or produced by the same processes whether you're at 7 p.m., 12 p.m., uh, or a.m., and or in the morning sector. And so you're going to see these kind of different auroras along this oval and this oval will also re, you know expand and retract whether like following the the uh, geomagnetic activity right so you have a lot of different um, factors whether this oval will kind of cross your location and you will be able to see the aurora and what type of aurora you will see so I think that's uh, it's one of the also one of the bi- biggest misconceptions and most aurora around the midnight But be careful, it's not the the local midnight, which is solar midnight, uh, or the time that's on your watch. Uh, That is the magnetic midnight. It's slightly different. It's when uh, you as an observer, the geomagnetic north pole and the sun are in line. So that doesn't necessarily correspond to solar midnight, which is the north geographic pole. Um, And so around that midnight, uh, for Iceland and Norway, that's around normal midnight, so that's that's nice. But for Alaska, it's more two thirty p uh, sorry a.m. right, so it, it's closer to morning uh, morning time. Um, but around that time, plus or minus four hours, you will have what we call the substorms. So those are mini storms, uh, which always work in a surging, growing process, and then release process. So for a long time, the aurora will be quiet. And then all of a sudden, it will explode into, you know, the beautiful, bright, dancing pinks and greens and reds that we know. Um, And afterwards, there is a recuperating phase, what what we call the recovery phase. So it always works in this kind of cycles. Uh, You can have one, two, three substorms during one night. Sometimes you have more. Um, So the goal, if you want to be an avid aurora chaser, is to um, know what type of of aurora that you're you're in. For example, if you're too early at night, you will not get the substorms, You will just get you know the o- stable aurora in the sky. But if you're in the midnight midnight sec- midnight sector, sorry, you will need to uh, know what kind of what phase of the substorm you're in to see if oh the substorm has already exploded. So I can wait maybe two three hours for another substorm to form. Um, so that's another thing. Uh, and then maybe a last thing, last uh, misconception is that the aurora doesn't depend on tropospheric weather, because the aurora happens so high up in the, uh, in almost at the edge of space, right, in the atmosphere. Uh, the separation between our normal weather, all the clouds, which doesn't go above seven miles, right, uh, the aurora is 55 miles up, starting, right, and way above. Um, so there's no relationship between cold, wind, um, you know, rain, clouds that we get on Earth and the aurora. Those are two independent things. Uh, so, yeah, those are the misconceptions, I think, that uh,
0: okay. people... Yeah. And um, you had touched on it earlier, but you started talking about all the different colors, you know, reds and purples and greens and whites. And I'm curious, not you know, at risk of putting our listeners to sleep, like, can you... Maybe explain what creates those different colors, and if possible, is there any way for us to uh, to when the colors will appear?
1: All right, so uh, I'm also going to try not to <laughs> to make things simple and to you know give the bigger picture. So how the aurora is, is uh, created is particles from the sun. that are charged particles. It's mostly electrons. They are precip- we call it precipitated? That means they're accelerated into our atmosphere. Uh, but the atmosphere is, uh, you know, we have molecules and atoms. So these electrons, uh, they cannot, you know, traverse the atmosphere without meeting at some point an atom or a molecule. And when it does so, it bumps into it and transfers its energy. And when that happens, you know, Atoms and molecules, they don't like, like having this excess energy. They want to get rid of it. And they can only do so by producing a photon of light. And so that's, what, that's how basically colors are created. So we have um, uh, the main oral colors are green, pink, red, and purple. Uh, we have variations of those depending on what atom is. Uh, it's mostly atoms actually that produce oral colors. Um, depending on what atom or molecule is producing the color. For example, oxygen produces green and red and then nitrogen or ionized nitrogen produce usually colors in the deep blue or in the pink or red. So uh, these entities are usually not that well mixed. We have uh, almost like stories in the sky. We have like uh, layers and so we usually have the lower pink is usually the the lowest color. Then the tra- it transitions into green, and then it transitions into red. And uh, the purple happens sometimes inside the green. So it's like an intricate process process in the the formation of colors there. Uh, and we can have mixes as well when you know we have a big storm. Then we have the colors mix more. And then when we have moonlight or uh, light pollution or even twilight, those affect the colors very highly. Uh, for example, the moonlight will transform any red into uh, magenta or uh, purple, even even blue sometimes. So we have this. Um, you know, we have to be careful about overall colors. And to finish on that, can we predict the colors? Um, I would answer, generally speaking, no. But actually, there is a way of predicting what type of color you will get. So we distinguish mainly two big events that produce the aurora. Uh, I'm going to say solar events that produce the aurora here on Earth. The first one we talked about, we talked about it already is CMEs, is coronal mass ejections, also known as solar storms. And this, these tend to produce more red and green colors with a very superficial uh, precipitation of electrons. The other event is called the coronal hole high speed stream. So pardon me for the <laughs> uh, the, the complicated word, uh, but those, they happen a bit more often and a bit more, um, they're I guess a, a bit more stable in a way, they, they come back, uh, you know, one solar rotation after the other. They may come back, sometimes they don't, but um, most of the time they do. And these produce more very quick, very bright pink and green uh, dances. So I'm not sure which one you saw in in Iceland, but I'm I'm guessing that was the pink and green more of, uh, yeah, the pink and green aurora.
0: Yeah, I I saw both, but yeah, yeah. I mean, there were definitely nights where it was, it sounds like it was one of those mini storms where it was very still, but there was still lots of patterns, but not a lot of movement. And then there was a couple of nights where it was dancing all over the place and you were just like, what am I looking at here? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you already touched on one of the myths in terms of KP index. What are some other common myths that you constantly are finding yourself having to debunk relating to the Aurora?
1: All right, so I guess the biggest myth that we have to debunk when we talk about Aurora is uh, the, uh, the, the fact that the Aurora happens the year round. Right? And people think there is because we say there is a season, uh, but w- when you say there is a season, you always need to precise where the season is because the season is location dependent. The aurora happens the year round, so it's it, again it doesn't matter you know uh, whether it's spring, uh, a summer, if it's cloudy, if it's raining, if it's snowing, the aurora happens regardless at the favor of the solar wind. So. Um, when we talk about aurora season the only thing that prevents us basically from seeing the aurora is the amount of light in this in the night sky and that is determined by the solar calendar right because here in the Arctic for example uh, I'm at 69 degrees north so that's very high latitudes geographic latitudes and so at the moment if I turn my my screen again you know it's 8:30 at night and it's clear, as day, it's it, it's daylight, right? So at the moment, there could be aurora in the night sky, and there probably is, but the sunlight washes it away. So there's no way for me to make out any aurora right now. So I need to wait until we have at least, at the very least, if you're acquainted with the types of twilight, we have civil twilight after sunset, for example, uh, then nautical twilight, then ast- astronomical twilight, and then nighttime. So at the very least, you need to wait for nautical twilight conditions so that's when you can make up the first stars in the, in the sky that's when you can start seeing the brightest of auroras but for better visibility you need to wait for nighttime for sure um, so we don't get those conditions until you know late August so for us the aurora season is from late August to the, the start of April basically that's when the it's dark enough in the sky to see the aurora but for uh, for example Fairbanks Alaska uh, which actually lies lower than uh, than us uh, but geomagnetically speaking you know uh, that's they're at the same latitude that's what's hard to understand is that although the geographic latitude is different uh, the the aurora is tilted uh, sorry the oval is tilted towards North America so it fair favors you guys in North America compared to us uh, but anyways Fairbanks um, is lower in latitude so they have a a bit, a broader aurora season. The last one, explosive aurora, or explosive nature of the aurora. Uh, And that's when uh, the aurora is kind of like dim in the sky, right? Uh, And it gets people to go back home or to to leave. And that's a big mistake to make is, um, especially around the midnight sector, again, the aurora is very explosive. That means at some point it will be quiet and dim, that's very normal. Even sometimes it disappears completely from the sky. Uh, and It, it kind of needs this uh, quiet, it's like the calm before the storm. It's a quiet analogy with uh, with uh, terrestrial weather. Um, you kind of need this calm to, for the aurora to explode. So please don't go to bed early. Um, I would say, you know, when you're past when you're two, three hours past that midnight sector, then you can go to bed because in the morning sector it's kind of like a, a boring pulsating, or well, I'm not gonna say boring, but um, a, a, a less spectacular pulsating aurora. So for photography, it's not that nice. Uh, really what you want to be able to capture is those big explosions. Uh, even the structure during pulsating auroras is, is not nice. So even if you had your composition, um, it's, it's not gonna render very nice, it's gonna be a big blob or the whole sky will be filled, filled with green. could be nice for something, but right. uh, you will get bored very quickly.
0: Oh yeah, I, I, I definitely experienced that. <laughs> All right, well, let's shift gears and talk more about the, the business side of, of your photography um, because you're, you're super niche, right? Um, you focused pretty much on one subject for the most part, and so I'm curious how you've managed to run a business solely focused on the Aurora.
1: That's a good question. So, um, I'm not going to lie to you, it's it's a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice or sacrifices that I've made over the years. And um, I, I've kind of sacrificed a lot of my content to be published online, right? It's Kind of, I'm not going to say it's free for everybody to use because it's definitely not free for everybody to use but I think you have to put yourself forward on social media especially and uh, really n- not hesitate to publish, publish, publish and make yourself... make your, make a name for yourself. At least that's, that's how I did it. I know it's different for everybody because we have different backgrounds and different stories but um, that's, that's how I did it. I think I started producing a lot of content when I arrived in Norway I found a job, you know, that allowed me to have time on, on the side. To uh, I was working at a resort that focused on the aurora, so already you know that was uh, a, a big plus for me. Uh, they had a the reindeer there, so that uh, helped me to get pictures with the reindeer. You know, something that has had been done before, but maybe not with the same setup and the same kind of brightness of aurora, that same wow effect. Um, so that really allowed me to be, you know, in a, a place. Other, uh, on earth that is absolutely magical and that allowed me to get a lot of beautiful content and I think that w- that's what made the difference uh, as opposed to me staying in France for example and, um, and and you know having to having to pay money to get somewhere to Iceland or to Alaska or to Canada I don't know um, so that that's that's how I did it. I think what also helped a lot was you know to really dive into the subject of Aurora. Uh, so, when you want to go into a niche subject, you really need to know the subject inside and out, I think. And so, the cool thing with the Aurora, or Aurora science, is that it's a very novel science, it's a very new science. And so, there are still a lot of discoveries that are being made, and there's still lots of things that we don't know, and that are at the stage of, oh, so these, you know, these, this group of scientists say it's one thing and this group of scientists disagrees completely, right? So there's still a lot of disputes in, in this world. And um, as you can imagine, there are, uh, and as we discussed, there are lots of misconceptions because of this novelty of, of science. And that's where I come in with the, the, the I, I built up a course where, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily for the new beginner, it's mostly for photographers or people who really want to get more um, hands-on with the aurora, to, to really understand the um, the aurora, um, you know, very deeply in, in that regard. And I think that works, that has worked for me really well over the past two years. Uh, that's always, you know, whenever there's, you know, a, a job or any a, a gig that, that comes up, then you just take it, uh, you're not really you know, picky on that. Um, you have to, to get the money where it is, uh, when you're a quote unquote starving artist. (laughs) Um, but, um, to get stability in the job, um, that is the big, that I think that's the biggest challenge for a lot of people. Uh, and it came for me with, you know, the, the passive revenue stream on social media. So I monetize some of my videos and also, uh, the fact that I posted a lot on social media, I got um, you know it got viewed by a lot of people and especially people in the um, production uh, production industry or documentary industry. And that's how I got con- you know I, I built my portfolio. like I, I think a lot of photographers go directly to clients or or um, um, you know got the word of mouth to build their portfolio. And with me, it was a bit different. I really put myself forward a bit too much sometimes, if you ask me, on social media. And um, uh, these these people from the production production companies, uh, they contacted me to, uh, you know, BBC and, and other production production companies. They contacted me to uh, get my my uh, time lapses uh, licensed. And now I um, I couldn't be happier. To be honest, I have my stuff on. On Netflix, on uh, on, B- on the BBC, on uh, uh, not natural, National Geographic yet, but it's coming uh, on major channels. So it, you know, it's really rewarding.
0: Yeah, no, congratulations. Um, I'm curious. It sounds like you're similar to a lot of photographers that I know that are making it, and that you've probably had to make some sacrifices to get to this point. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about. Some of the things that you've had to give up or put to the side in order to make this happen.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so the the first thing you need to sacrifice is your time and your personal personal life. So no, <laughs> well, very little. I'm, I'm not gonna say no because you know you still have a bit of time. But um, social life, you know, that's always to that detriment. You, you kind of need to not put a cross on it, but just. Uh, limit your social life Uh, you need to be spending a lot of time outside Uh, there's no other I don't think there's any other loophole that you can you can uh, you can use Um, spend a lot of time watching uh, videos learning from other people Uh, I spent a lot of time what you know uh, diving into scientific articles like who does that right (laughs) Um, so yeah you're gonna miss you know, uh, weddings, you're gonna miss birthdays, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, you, you kind of try to explain to your family, but that, that's for a good cause, that's for my survival, basically, this is what I choose for a living. So, um, if you understand this right now, and you see in, in a few years, I'll definitely be able to attend these weddings and birthdays and, and uh, family events. So, uh, that's the first round of sacrifice. And I think the second round of sacrifice is, money-wise, you need to invest a lot on uh, gear, that's for one. But I think that's the same for a lot of uh, debuting photographers, but also uh, in, um, uh, I was going to say, travel. Uh, and of course, that's especially true. That wasn't that that much true for me because uh, I was already in on location, I guess. Uh, but for a lot of, um, of um, photographers, you know, they need to go um, places to, to get content. And at the very beginning, you know, before getting the job in Norway, I was actually doing a last trip because I had given me one year with my photography uh, company to say, okay, at the end of one year, if I didn't make it, if I didn't have enough uh, clients or, you know, if I didn't make enough money, then I'm gonna give up and give up and go back to te- to my teaching position, or at least to my uh, my degree. And um I was doing this last trip in Sweden to get Aurora content, and um I was just basically about to give up, right? That's mm. the very last trip, the very last uh straw, I guess, <laughs> uh before being completely broke. And um out of uh, out of the blue, I got this message from uh, from the my what was going to be my next ne, ne, next boss, or my, nest, my, ne, my next my uh, next job uh, in Norway, uh, asking me to come visit and and uh, made the transition into Norway. So, if I have a, a I know it's going to be a bit cheesy, but if I have a an piece of advice for people that are listening, maybe new photographers that want uh, to go pro is that never, ever, 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 ever give up on uh, what you're doing. And, you know, that might be your last, you think that might be your last um, adventure or you're just about to give up and then something up, something comes up and uh, kind of saves you and kind of keeps you into that, uh, that uh, realm of photography. So I I'm not going to say that's going to happen every time, but if you persevere, uh, the chances of that happening to you are
0: getting higher. Yeah, I'm in this Discord channel with a lot of other photographers and we talk about opportunity and luck and kind of like this overlap between the two because, I mean, yeah, there's definitely cases of photographers who, they just got lucky, like they met the right person at the right time and it just worked out and they, but, and, uh, the more times you put yourself out there, the more work you put into your craft, the more things that you're trying to get accomplished is that's just another chance. It's like another lottery ticket that you're buying for yourself. And you know I haven't necessarily had that happen to me yet, but I've had it in pieces and chunks that have kind of built up over time. So it def- your message definitely resonates with me as well. Yeah,
1: yeah I agree. And, and uh, that, that, uh, uh, that principle of fact that you, you just mentioned that uh, these, these definitely accumulate over time. So the more you're gonna put yourself out there um, and put your, yourself into, into view, to say it, to say it that way, um, the more you're gonna have these opportunities present themselves to you. Uh, and that's, that's true now. I mean, you know, once that my name was in, in the database of uh, the BBC, for example, then I got email after email, you know, asking me, oh, is this footage available for licensing and everything? So really, you know, it, it just takes sometimes one person or one event and, and that's it. So
0: yeah, well, shifting gears a little bit, um, I would love for you to tell us about the work that you do with nonprofits to study uh, noctilucent clouds and maybe tell us what the heck those even are.
1: What are <laughs> noctilucent clouds? <laughs> um, all right, so noctilucent clouds are the uh, the highest clouds on Earth. So um, it's already quite mesmerizing in itself because uh, most of the clouds that we have on Earth they happen in a layer of the atmosphere called the troposphere. So there is a layer that occurs between zero and seven miles up, right? So that's at the limit. Of where commercial airlines fly, that's about seven seven miles, ten kilometers up, uh, slightly above that because there's a stable layer called the tropopause. But the noctilucent clouds are eight times, or I'm going to say seven times, higher than those clouds. So they happen so far up, almost at the edge of space, and sometimes we call them space clouds. Uh, so it's a bit of a of a funky name, but um, um, and they happen in an area of the atmosphere that is very, very tenuous. So what that that adjective means is that uh, there aren't a lot of molecules and atoms at that altitude, right? Uh, if you go, if you climb Mount Everest, you're gonna notice, right? You're probably gonna need an oxygen mask because um, the air is so thin. But that you're already above ninety percent of the atmosphere on Mount Everest, right? So try to imagine at um, 50, 55 miles up, you're above 99.9% of the atmosphere. There's so few atoms and molecules there to to breathe in for you, right? Um, So that's not possible for any human to evolve at that altitude unless they're in a spacecraft. But the problem is um, it's too low for orbiting, right? So it's a no man's zone to study this layer of the atmosphere. But just to go back on the, the clouds, they, um, it's basically they're made of, of uh, tiny ice crystals. And so when we see them from the ground, they appear as a layer of um, glowing cloud against the, the dark twilight. So we can only see them when the, when the sun is below the horizon and hits them at a precise angle. So usually around the, actually the nautical twilight that we talked about, earlier that's when the sun is at the right angle and so it scatters the light onto those clouds and we, we perceive them as a faint glowing cloud uh against the, the the twilight backdrop basically so
0: i mean in night night i'm a i'm a big night photographer less so now than i used to be but I used, is that airglow? I mean, that's what we used to always call airglow, like, oh, that's nice airglow.
1: That is actually not airglow. So airglow oh, okay. happens <laughs> slightly over that layer of the atmosphere. Okay. Uh, these clouds cannot be seen during daytime and they cannot be seen during nighttime. Airglow okay. can only be seen during late uh, astronomical twilight and nighttime. Um, but uh, they they um, display the same patterns of Gravity waves, for example, that airglow often displays you know the those large scale waves across the sky um, so the that's why they they appear so so st- strangely to us and they're very like um, eerie almost right in the night sky because it's like this ghostly white this 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 blanket of ice basically that's glowing uh, wh- whereas the rest of the sky is completely. Well, not completely dark, because you're in the twilight, but you can see stars and everything. There's nothing in the sky. And then on the poleward horizon, you get this blanket of glowing tendrils, um, sometimes creating shapes that are absolutely out of this world. Actually, if you look at those clouds, you can. Uh, some people say it's they, they look like alien clouds. Um, and actually, we see them on Mars as well. Um, so beautiful clouds. And why am I... Uh, involved in those uh, in this science or in this field of science is because uh, there 's been a trend for the past thirty years that um, it seems that we are um, getting more and more sightings of these clouds and at so brighter not only brighter but also at lower latitudes than what uh, they usually uh, are. Uh, and that is polar latitudes, so not below 60 degrees north uh, in the northern hemisphere. Of course, they happen only in the summer in the northern hemisphere and of course in the summer, so our winter, in the southern hemisphere. Um, There's been a trend during the past 30 years that uh, we have more sightings of them and um, there's no way for us to know for now precisely why that happens and some theories say that it's because of climate change. Hmm. And we can correlate, for example, the concentration of methane in uh, the atmosphere or CO2, and those uh, produce water vapor by oxidation. So it's a, it's a mouthful, I know, but ultimately they may create more uh, of these noctilucent clouds. So when people talk about climate change, right, they, that's something that they cannot really see yet, right or they cannot maybe the only thing they can do is feel it with the temperature that's getting generally warmer right but uh, other than that there's no visual clues there's no visual window into climate change so for the very first time in history or at least recent history there could be an indicator that is visual uh, that helps us basically visualize climate change so if really those two are are correlated if NLCs, noctilucent clouds, indeed indicate climate change, that's a huge um, thing to study, right? So that's where I come in and, and say, okay, that, that's actually very interesting. Yeah. And um, I started when I was in Denmark, I started interest, uh, getting interest into anything night um, sky and obviously NLCs are, um, are one of these phenomena. And I started taking time-lapses of these beautiful clouds and that got seen on Twitter, no, on uh, Facebook, by the, uh, the CEO of this non-profit organization based out of uh, Colorado, I think it, it is. It's called Project Possum. Uh, the project uh, aims at studying these noctilucent clouds and, uh, as a broader subject, the mesosphere, which is the layer of the atmosphere where they occur, basically. Um, and so the project kind of aims, it's partly NASA funded, and it aims at uh, ultimately launching astronaut candidates into space or into la- that layer of the atmosphere to study the clouds, whether by imaging the clouds or by, a- by actually probing uh, for the very first time this layer of the atmosphere. So it's a fascinating project. It, it um, uh, involves Uh, Aeronautics, space science, Uh, being an astronaut, which is always, you know, in people's head, it's always, oh my God. Um, When you pronounce the name NASA, like you know, you get all these uh, these lights, light bulbs in your head going, oh my God, that's absolutely crazy. Uh, And I actually got to work with a few uh, retired uh, NASA astronauts. It's absolutely incredible to hear about their experience in space and everything. Yeah, so it, it touches on a lot of different subjects and it, it, it um, uh, also enables me to work with a lot of different actors in um, in the space industry. And yeah, it's, it's just fascinating.
0: That sounds awesome. Well, I had one more space weather question for you. And you feel free to tell me you don't know the answer because we never talked about it before. But there's this super rare uh, space phenomenon that I've always wanted to photograph. Um, I think they're called sprites. Is that... Can, do you know anything about that
1: yeah so i i'm in no way any expert on on the the subject but i think i know enough to give like a, a yeah like
0: like what the heck they are and like because they yeah. look it almost looks like an alien invasion like there are these red spikes looking things that are like above the clouds i mean it looks insane <laughs> it's
1: like a jellyfish almost like a yeah yeah like alien jellyfish kind
0: right of you're thing. like oh we're about to get invaded <laughs>
1: <laughs> that well actually um I think there is such a thing as a, uh, as a, uh, as sprite jellyfish or something like that, that they found. It's like a giant sprite. Um, so what are these optical phenomena? So, because they are optical phenomena, um, they occur above, uh, thunderstorms or at least, uh, above the troposphere, right? Above active turbulences on, in the troposphere. So it, that usually is, uh, electrical activity, in uh, the troposphere. And so that is, you know, thunderstorms and, um, um, and discharge of plasma in the troposphere. And that induces, to make it simple, that induces a difference in charge hmm. between the troposphere and the higher uh, atmosphere. That's, those things also happen in, you know, around the same place as NLCs and Aurora, uh, where the atmosphere is charged. And so that difference in charge creates a potential and that potential eventually creates or can create a discharge of light or plasma. And the sprites that we see, uh, for example, they're, they're not alone as a phenomenon. Uh, we have jets and uh, pixies and elves and other funky names. <laughs> uh, they happen because of this discharge of plasma into the into the upper atmosphere. And so... Um, they are really, really hard to photograph because they're so elusive, right? When you think about uh, lightning, right, it's, like it's a split second, and if you don't have a little device that, um, uh, I think you can find these little devices that yeah, work the on.
0: triggers. It. Yeah, yeah the,
1: the frequency triggers, um, right? You're not gonna, or you need a lot of luck to be able to photograph lightning. Um, well, that's the same with, with sprites. Um, you're gonna to have to, I, I think um, a lot of the debuting, or there are not a lot of sprite photographers in the world, I know only of a, of a handful of them. And at the very start, they were only using uh, film to, uh, they were continuously filming, you know, uh, the, um, um, a thunderstorm cell, or a, 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 is that called a, a measles cell? I, I can't remember the full name of it. Uh, those huge cell, the giant cells that you get in the U.S. in the in the Tornado alley, alley, and they were looking from a distance, from a few hundred miles distance above that cell, and if they were lucky, they were gonna film these giant uh, sprites and and jets, and uh, they were just do make uh, grabbing uh, a frame grab by basically from that uh, from that film, and afterwards, I think um, uh, Paul Smith, which is uh, one of the Uh, the most famous um, sprite uh, photographers Um, I think now he's using uh, a special device as well that um, you know can sort of predict as well as lightning but I'm not sure if it's on the same frequency so I I cannot tell you know I cannot tell you but um, he can uh, be there to photograph those sprites with the camera and he can use longer focal lengths because uh, then of course that's a lot of luck is involved, but um, uh, he f- was able to photograph crazy, crazy shapes of these uh, mesmerizing. Oh. Photos.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen some of the photos. I'm just like Whoa. wow. Um, yeah, so it sounds like they're very transient. Like they don't last. Like it's a, it's like a, just a blast of light and then it's gone.
1: LTEs, light, uh, luminous transient events. At, yeah. So yeah, you, you used the right adjective actually.
0: Okay, <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, a um, couple more questions. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what people can expect and how to find out more information about your Aurora Chasing course.
1: All right, so, um, so I offer these courses, um, I repeat myself, they're probably not for uh, someone that just got into Aurora or Aurora Photography. Uh, it's more for the more advanced um, chaser or photographer that wants to gain more knowledge about how all those things you know come together, and uh, trying to debunk all the all the stuff that we've been we've been taught on social media or uh, you know even on sometimes on the websites that we that we have what are the best tools. Uh, so I offer these these courses monthly uh, via uh, Zoom. But uh, I don't do them specifically during the summer, so it's mainly during the my Aurora season, starting from August and spanning towards uh, April, I think. So right now I'm I'm uh, having a break because these course these courses demand a lot of uh, concentration for me. They actually are a series of between four and five weekly uh, sessions of three hours. So oh, the course wow, itself. Yeah. Th- Massive 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 right there's lots of information in that in that course Uh, And so for people to digest it better uh, I've you know kind of um, I've broken it down into several pieces uh, several sessions I'm gonna probably gonna do session in I'm gonna start the sessions in July again and the best way to uh, for people to uh, to attend or at least to be put on the waiting list uh, is just to send me an email or uh, to look at on my website. I have all my information there. It's 3w.nightlightsfilms.com. Uh, so plural, plural, uh, and they can also contact me on social media. Uh, it's fairly easy to, to find me. Um, they can find my name, but they can also find, I'm usually present as Night Lights or Night Lights Films on social media, I'm present on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. I'm also on on YouTube because I do a lot of videos so um, I'm very reactive on there so they can uh, uh, I do have a lot of requests so the courses are are working a lot which is positive for me Uh, but I do have a lot of requests and I have limited places each month uh, about 10 10 spots so if people can it can uh, uh, contact me in advance then I can uh, secure spots for them for sure.
0: Well that's a good problem to have <laughs> It is, it is. <laughs> Awesome man, well last question I have for you is who are some people that you recommend for the podcast, who should we know more about or try to talk to you?
1: Right, I'm going to start with who inspired me for um, uh, to get into astrophotography, so when I was at the very beginning when it was uh, you know I was just Debuting in in um, um, in astrophotography, I was looking at inspiration. Of course, we all do that, I guess, uh, for any kind of style or or you know ideas of composition. And um, I really really uh, want to recommend. Uh, so the very first person that got me into what I do now is I'm not sure. Hopefully, I pronounce his name correctly. Uh, I met him in person actually. He came to Norway, and that's. Peter or Petr uh, Horarek, uh, He's from Czech Republic, and uh, he's a very, very famous uh, astrophotographer. He's been doing this for, for years, and he's he's a ESO ambassador, uh, and he takes gorgeous, gorgeous compositions that are very, uh, to me at least, because it's always always comes down co- comes down to your tastes. Uh, looks uh, his pictures look, look very natural to me uh not overdone uh not over processed uh he does everything from Milky Way to eclipse eclipses to uh, anything astro related basically um yeah so that's that's the first one the second one was Yuri beletsky uh, he's also an ESO ambassador and works uh full time I think for the Alma observatory in Chile um and uh, he's been taking absolutely. Insane compositions. Uh, I really love his style with where you can see both the foreground and uh, The background, you know, it's very very hard at night to to get these things right with the blending of the foreground and the background Um, And I think he does it with parsimony. He does it really well uh, And it's always been a huge source of inspiration for me Um, So the third person I wanted to to name today was Alan Wallace because we started astrophotography at about the same time, and we were born about the same time as well, and, and our uh, stories kind of resemble each other. So our, I don't think our style, we have, comp- not completely, but we have different styles of you know, still photography at least, uh, but we match in terms of, um, of a lot of things, and, and um, the way he approaches um, astrophotography, and uh, the way he approaches the gear, Um, going into the field, uh, the way he approaches composition. I think he does more about composition and I focus more on the sky but we've had trips together, Uh, we did uh, collaborations together so he's a very good pal of mine and uh, I really recommend him because he's full of uh, ideas and he's full of knowledge. He's just published a book that is what I call the Bible of Astrophotography Um, and uh, I'm sure that he would be a good subject for you to to have on the podcast. Then the fourth person, and I think they come together. Uh, the fourth and the fifth person. Um, those are Benjamin Baccarat or and Ralph Roner. So I put them together, and because um, I think they've they've photographed together a lot. Uh, they both live in in um, Switzerland, and they have very uh, distinctive styles as well that are very alike and they started this I think you know they're, they're some of the pioneers in this trend of um, having a, for, a really detailed foreground of um, you know that can be mountains, that can be lakes, that can be anything but really what they've, um, what they've focused on over the years is to really uh, gain more details in the, back, in the background sky usually, right? When you take a, a photograph of the night sky, you have a foreground and maybe a Milky Way, but most people would take a single shot of the Milky Way, even if it's a, a track shot, they will take just a single shot. Um, some people do panoramas, but most people would do single shots uh, because it's easier, they, they point and shoot and then they do something else, right? What these two do is that they spend hours and hours and hours at the same location and uh, they would use a tracker for the sky so they would gain more uh, signal from the sky. They will reveal beautiful nebulae and things that usually we cannot see in one single exposure and they would superpose that uh, or overlap that on top of the original foreground and they don't do any type of, uh, you know, manipulation with the the size and everything. They they try to respect, uh, you know, of course it's People can do whatever they want, and, and um, you know, I, I'm not here to judge, but uh, I, I really like that they respect the size of uh, the foreground and the background, and they use the same focal length and everything.
0: Yeah, so they, uh, we call them deepscapes.
1: Yeah, deepscapes, exactly. Yeah. And I got in, into that uh, actually when I started astrophotography, and I, I started this. Um, I didn't start because I, I, I took it from, uh, I took the idea from someone else um, in the US, I think what was his name the uh, Dakota lapse I think he's got oh yeah the,
0: yeah yeah uh, Randy Halverson
1: yes that's it that's yeah. it yeah uh, and he was one of the first actually he was the first time lapse that I saw of uh, a deep sky object like who does deep you know deep sky time lapse like what does that where does that fit in um and so I, uh, I had the idea of expanding this technique and, for, um, for example, the Andromeda Galaxy against the background or um, close-up of the Milky Way core against the background, Ro Fuki which is a, uh, a colorful area uh, of the night sky against the background. So I did a lot of things. And these two that I just named, Benjamin and Ralph, uh, they take it to the next level. Uh, they're, they're, um, they're just so much, you know... Uh, so much out there they're just uh, oh yeah it's extreme just-
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm actually a co-moderator of nightscaper facebook group with ralph and yuri on facebook so nice uh, ralph's always producing some wild stuff <laughs> yeah, he does yeah awesome well i know at the very start of the podcast well, we had alluded to some interesting interactions between you and Elon Musk on Twitter, and we'll save that for our Patreon episode. So if people are really interested about content theft and Twitter and Elon Musk and how that all went down with you, join us over on Patreon. But for now we're going to sign off and I just wanted to thank you for your time,
1: Adrian. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's been a blast. Um, I hope that uh, the listeners were able to at least get a little bit o- o- on the Aurora to hopefully not to make the biggest mistakes they can make and and capture the Aurora. Uh, but if they have any other question, I, you know, as long as it's not like, it doesn't take me an hour, I'm really happy to answer any short questions on social media that they might have as well. So no worries for that.
0: Well, thank you, Adrian, for the great conversation on today's podcast. I learned a lot, and I think our listeners will as well. Just a reminder to listeners that Adrian is offering a discount to listeners on his Aurora Chasing course using the code FSTOPCOLLAB2023. Just head over to nightlightsfilm.com or find a link in the show notes. I also wanted to let you know that we we recorded a juicy episode where Adrian discusses his recent hands-on spat with Elon Musk on Twitter that was in regards to a copyright infringement issue. It's well worth your time to listen, and as a bonus, you help support the podcast as well. Just go to patreon.com forward slash and listen to join. We'll see you there. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.